I still remember it from years and years ago. This one particular uh, lady came to me and she said, you know, it's just not fair. She said, I, I try to do all the right things. I try to make sure that my children are in church every Sunday. I try to make sure that we do what the Bible says. And yet I have all kinds of problems in my life. And the people that live around me, they do nothing that the Bible says. They don't go to church. They don't do any of those things. And yet they seem to have a better life than I do. It just doesn't seem to be fair. And I guess we've all, at one time or another in our lives, asked that same question. It just doesn't seem to be fair. We're trying to do the right thing, and yet God seems to be blessing someone who's not trying to do the right thing. And the Lord told us a story so that we would have an answer to that particular question, and it's in the 20th chapter of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 20, I'll read from the New American Standard. If you look at the text up here, Peter has said to the Lord, we've left everything and we've followed you. What are we going to get for that? And Jesus answers him by telling him this story in chapter 20. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into the vineyard. And then he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you go out in the vineyard and whatever's right, I'll give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out, and he found others standing, and he said to them, "'Why have you been standing idle all day long?' And they said to him, "'Because nobody hired us.' And he said to them, "'You too go into the vineyard.' And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "'Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius.' And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, and they also received each one a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the, and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But if I wish to give the last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do so, that which I do what I wish with that which is mine? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? The last will be first and the first last. There are, Jesus wants us to understand three things from this story, and you can take them with you today, because these stories that Jesus tells us, they are meant to travel with us. They're not meant to just be told and then moved away from. They're meant to sort of be a splinter in our mind that stays with us, and we keep thinking about them and thinking about them. They're meant to be sort of a, a piece of tape on a little child's finger that they can't get off, that that the the, the story just seems to continue with them long after it has been told. The three things that Jesus wants us to recognize from this story are that there was an agreement, that there was an argument, 
and that there is an application to the story, that Jesus doesn't just tell the story for entertainment. Matthew doesn't just record the story for us for entertainment, but he's me- he means to teach us something about the kingdom of God, and that's the reason that Jesus begins the parable in that way. And so the first thing that we see is the agreement. It was common in this period in history for men to gather in the marketplace as sort of a day laborers kind of way of gaining work. And so it, it would, there, there was no middle class in Second Temple Judaism. You were either poor, which was the vast majority of the people, or you were rich and you could hire other people to work for you. Those who were poor generally subsisted on very little. And so when they agree to work for a denarius, that's a day's wage. It's basically a subsistence wage. They're not getting rich off of that. They're barely making enough to, to live on. Uh, it, it's difficult always to make these economic comparisons, but it's been thought that you needed about 200 denarii in order to to live at the poverty level in Second Temple Judaism. So when they're working for one denarius a day, they're not making much. They're making just a tiny bit, enough to have enough food for that day. That's the reason earlier in Matthew, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches them how to pray, He says to them, when you pray, pray like this, and they pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because they're not asking, give us enough food for the month, or give us enough food so that if we go through a hurricane, we'll have plenty. They're just, give us enough food for today, because that was the way they subsisted. And so this landowner goes to the marketplace, probably at about 6 o'clock in the morning, and he finds some men there, and he agrees with them, listen, this is the agreement, I'll pay you a day's wage if you will give me a day's work. And so they come and they start working for him. And then through ill-planning or whatever the case, we don't know, and not every detail in the parable is meant to teach us some theological point. The, the, he goes back to the marketplace at probably about 9 o'clock in the morning, and he gets some more people. And he says, listen, whatever's right, I'll pay you. And then he goes back at about noon and gets some more people. And he says, I'll, I'll pay you. He goes back at about 3 o'clock and then probably at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, just before they were going to quit, at 6 o'clock in the evening when the sun goes down, they were, that was going to be the end of the day. He goes back at 5 o'clock and gets some more men. And so it comes time at 6 o'clock for them to be paid, because it was the law in Israel, it's a law in Deuteronomy, that you pay a day laborer at the end of the, at the, end of the day. It was against the law to hold back his wages until the end of the week or something like that, because these were people who, they, they barely had enough to subsist, so you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, keep their wages back. It was against the law. So at the end of the day, they had to be paid. The end of the day comes, the first people who were paid are the people who've been only working for an hour. And the landowner has his foreman give them a full day's wage. And you can imagine what the people who had been working there for 12 hours said, this is going to be the greatest day ever. We we, we work for, these guys only work for one hour and they got a one denarius. We're going to get 12 denarii. This is going to be tremendous. We are going to, we're going to love this day. We might even be able to take a day or two off. But then when it goes down the line, they each keep still getting paid one day's wage, one denarius. And when they finally get to the men who've been working for 12 hours, 
the agreement begins to break down into an argument. <clears throat> and the, the people are not really happy about the fact that they've been working for 12 hours and they're only getting paid one day's wage. And those who've been working for uh, one hour are getting paid the same amount of wage. And so they begin to protest that. And you see that in the 11th and the 12th verses, they grumble at the landowner. And they said, these men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us, but we have borne the heat of the day. And it was hot working, particularly during the summertime in Israel. They said, this, this is, this is, this is just not fair. And the owner speaks to them. He answers them in verse 13 and he says, friend, the word for friend is, is, it's not, it's not a term of endearment, but it's just a term of respect that you would use for someone else. Uh, actually, another translation had translated it comrade. And I didn't, you know, you gotta wear a fur hat and stuff if you're gonna call somebody comrade. So it's not really, but it's just, it's just this, 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 these are people whom he's not trying to disrespect them, but he's saying, listen, I, I, didn't I give you what I told you I was going to give you? I told you that if you worked all day, you'd get a denarii. Here's your denarii. Take what you are getting and go on. And don't worry about what has happened to the rest of these people. The owner says, if I want to give these other people more, if I want to give them enough wage to subsist them for a day, if I want to give them enough so that they're not starving tonight, then that's up to me, and you certainly shouldn't be angry about it. But they were. It was unfair, and Jesus then makes the application of this story by telling them a very enigmatic sort of end to it. He says to them, the last will be first and the first last. And you... You wonder, what does that mean exactly? Because when you look at the story, it does seem like the landowner has been kind of unfair. I mean, these guys have worked for 12 hours. They've worked all day out in the hot sun, and you're going to give a guy who worked an hour the same amount of wages. It really doesn't seem that fair. We've all been in that place in our life when We've tried to do the right thing, tried to do everything that we could to please God, and yet it seems as if that person who's doing wickedness and doing everything that God has said not to do is being blessed more than we are, and it just seems like that's really not fair. You see, the truth is Jesus wants us to realize from this passage of Scripture that we can't go around comparing ourselves to one another and seeking to find out about the fairness of God, that God ultimately will straighten it all out, but that we ought to realize that we are all recipients of God's grace and that we all, at the end of the day, get better than we deserve. If you ever have come into my office down at the seminary, you would learn several things about me, uh, in addition to the fact that I uh, don't like to turn the lights on, uh, and I'm a little strange in some other ways. Go ahead and laugh, it's all right. I have a petrified fish on my desk, because 
I think that's the best place for it. But if you came in, you know, you'd see all these books in the office, and I haven't read any of them, but they're, they're there anyway. And uh, you would see two things, particularly if you came to my office. One is that uh, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, which is a sickness that I acquired when I lived in Chicago. And the other is that I'm a huge admirer of a famous Baptist minister from 150 years ago named Charles Spurgeon. You would see if you came in there, sort of uh, my own shrine. You know, there's this picture that a member of a church from a long, long time ago painted for me of Spurgeon, and there's an actual uh, one of his sermon notes that, that he has written on himself, and his. I have another page of his autograph, and Spurgeon, for those of you that don't know, was perhaps, at least in the last several hundred years, the most influential preacher of the gospel in the English language, bar bar nobody. And so we would think, if we were to ask ourselves about this man, Charles Spurgeon, we would think he was clearly doing all kinds of great things for God. He had his sermons published, and today they are available still in 27 volumes, all of his sermons. They were going out, sermons were printed, 25, 30,000 copies were sold every week of his sermons. And he had an orphanage. He had did all kinds of amazing things for the kingdom of God. And if, if you were to think, if ever there was a person who certainly loved God and did what he should and ought not to have had any trials in his life because he was doing the right thing, it should have been Charles Spurgeon. And yet, when you read his biography written by one of his friends or his own autobiography, you begin to realize that his life was not without its troubles. In fact, he had what may have been one of the most difficult lives of any man in ministry. When he was 22 years old, he was already world famous, and he was preaching at a a place in London called Surrey Music Hall while they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is still there today. The Metropolitan Tabernacle is where he ministered for most of his life. But at 22, he's preaching in the Surrey Music Hall. There are thousands and thousands of people there. There are people up in the balconies. The place is packed with people that have come to hear him on a Sunday night, and someone thinks that it would be funny to yell out fire, and so they do. They start yelling out fire, and this panic erupts among the people, and people die as a result of the ensuing panic and trampling. The next day and for weeks afterward, the, the newspapers were vicious in their, in their placing of blame onto Charles Spurgeon, who was there trying to preach the gospel. And you, you think, Lord, that doesn't seem fair. Here's a man who's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to draw people to the cross, and yet this happens to him. Later on in his life, he was plagued with a variety of physical illnesses, the worst of which he says was his gout. He talks about his gout in his autobiography. He says it's when it was at its worst, it was as if he had been bitten by a cobra, and the cobra had 
placed its, its poison into his bloodstream, and he felt in every joint of his body as if it would never go away. And in the last eight or ten years of his ministry, he missed fully one-third of the Sunday's preaching because he couldn't stand up because of the gout. Not only did he suffer physical problems, but he also suffered from what today we would call manic depression. He has a chapter in his book, Lectures to My Students, which are lectures that he gave to, in addition to having an orphanage, he had a, a school for ministers. And he gave them lectures, which have been collected into a book. And one of the lectures is called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And he talks about the terrible, terrible depression that he faced in his life. Some thought it was due to the incident at Surrey Hall. Others thought it was simply a part of his makeup. But whatever the case may have been... He is a man who gives himself fully and completely to the working of the kingdom of God, and he lives his life in pain. His wife is bedridden for the last third of his 57 years of life here on earth, and he is chronically and constantly attacked by other ministers and by newspapers and by a variety of other people just doesn't seem fair. I mean, it seems as if if you're going to give your life to the working of the kingdom of God, that God could, could make our lives at least a little better than that of Charles Spurgeon. We've all faced at one time or another, I'm sure, that time in our life when we said, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing, and everything seems to be going wrong. Can you imagine the sort of pain and sorrow that Spurgeon faced? And yet, until he died at 57 years old, he went on doing the work of God, realizing that it is not his job to decide what's fair, but it is God's job. And the problem, you see, with, with all of us at one time or another in our lives is that we, we decide what we deserve and how our life ought to be by comparing ourselves to other people. That's what's happening here in this passage of Scripture. These men are not saying, yes, we agreed to work with you for a day's wage. You're giving us a day's wage and nothing wrong with that. They're saying, but look at how you treated that guy. What about that guy? You remember the end of the Gospel of John? Jesus begins to speak about the way that John will minister in the kingdom, and, and Peter then says... Well, what about me? And Jesus says, listen, you do what's right and don't worry about anyone else. And we're all faced with difficulties in our life. We all have those occasions in our life when we have physical problems or financial problems or family problems or whatever the difficulties may be, and it seems to us as if It's just not fair. But at the end of the day, God promises that we will look at it differently. There's a drawing that you may have seen that's there on the screen. 
shouldn't frighten you, hopefully. It looks like a skull at first. You see it, and you think, this is another lunatic thing that he's put up there. It looks like a crazy... It's a skull. But as you look at it more carefully, you realize that it's not exactly a skull, that it looks like a skull until you look at it from another side, and you realize that it's actually a beautiful young girl looking into the mirror, putting on her makeup. And I think that Jesus wants us to recognize that when we go through our lives, we are tempted to look at the difficulties that we face as if we're looking at the skull. Nothing seems as if it fits together. Nothing seems as if it has any purpose. We can't imagine why in the world God would allow or cause these events to happen in our life. And yet He promises us promises us through the Apostle Paul, promises us through a variety of of characters in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He promises us that one day we will look back at those difficulties in our life, and we will look at them from another angle, and they will, rather than being these terrible difficulties that look like a skull, they will be great and beautiful pictures that have been drawn together by the hand of the Almighty God. And though they look like The images that happen in our life and the events that happen in our life right now look as if they're not fair. One day, God will draw them all together, and we will look back, and we will recognize that He is indeed working it all out for good, and that what we thought wasn't fair was ultimately the great and wonderful grace of God. That's the story that Jesus wants us to walk away with. And so I hope that you will take it and hold it in your hand like an infant holding a piece of tape and work it and see what God has to say to you about the difficulties that you might be facing so that you will not say, it's not fair but that you will say, ultimately, I know that God is going to do some great and wonderful things. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can trust You during these times of difficulty. We are thankful for those who have gone before us, like Charles Spurgeon. We pray now that You will bless the difficulties that are represented here in this congregation, that whatever they may be facing, whether it might be physical or financial or whatever it is, that you will bless them, that you will draw them together, and that they might realize that you are calling us to a great and a perfect city, and we will look back and see Your hand in everything that has happened. And we pray this in the name of that One who suffered such great things for us, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.